So <clears throat> on April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston, um, a 27-year-old at the time, mechanical engineer, went canyoneering in the Blue John Canyon of southeastern Utah. He didn't let anybody know that day where he was going because that hike in particular, in his words, was like a walk on the beach. No concern. So he descended into the Slot Canyon, and there was a suspended boulder, an 800-pound suspended boulder that dislodged, and as he fell with that boulder, his arm, it crushed his hand and pinned him to the wall in this slot. So he tried everything he could to extricate his arm to move the boulder all to no avail. He ran out of food and water after five days. So he figured he was going to die there. He had actually considered amputating his arm, but he only had a cheap multi-tool <laughs> with a dull two-inch knife, and he knew there'd be no way to cut through the bone. So that fifth day, he actually scratched an epitaph on the wall of the stone wall there, and he recorded messages for his family. He had a camcorder with him, um, and he recorded kind of final words, messages for them. And that final night, <clears throat> he had a dream. It may have been a hallucination. I mean, obviously at that point. And there was this young boy in a living room, and he was playing with this young boy, and he was missing his right arm. And he understood that the boy was his future son. At the time, he wasn't married. He wasn't dating anyone. And he woke up in the morning, and he had this epiphany that he could use torque and break his arm, break his radius and ulna. And he did so. And then he proceeded to use that dull two-inch multi-tool knife blade to sever his arm at the forearm. He used, you know, those camelback um, hydration packs. He took the rubber hose off of that, made a tourniquet, and severed his arm, leaving the largest arteries till the end. Mechanical engineer, pretty smart guy. We know about those kind of people around here, don't we? Um, he then climbed out of the slot canyon, rappelled down a 65-foot sheer cliff, and began hiking the eight miles back to his truck. After about six miles, he came upon a family who gave him food and water and called for help. But providentially, his mother had already alerted the search and rescue team, and they were looking for him by helicopter. And so approximately four hours after he had amputated his arm, he was evacuated by that helicopter, and he lived. So he lost his arm, but he gained his life. So let's look at our passage here for this morning. Uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And this morning, we come to the section verses 27 to 30. So if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 810. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verses 
27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, Jesus speaking to his disciples, the crowd is also kind of listening in around the edges. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So this is obviously a pretty serious passage, and it's obvious that lust is a pretty serious issue to Jesus. Okay, so as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning, um, we're in the year 2020. We talked about a 2020 vision 2020 vision, fixing our eyes on Jesus because of the surpassing worth of knowing him. Okay, so fixing our eyes on Jesus comes from Hebrews chapter 12, which says, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, people that have gone behind, finished the race, you know, kept the faith, like David, who committed adultery and, actually worse than that, it was like rape, and he repented, Psalm 51, which is the passage that Phil read. Okay, so people have gone before sexual sinners just like you and me. And by the grace of God, they have made it. So we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, lay aside, throw off the sin that so easily entangles so that we can run with endurance and make it. And it's all in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Okay, so that's what we're doing through the Sermon on the Mount is we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're learning from him. We're following him. And if you want the little reading plan that we gave out, um, you can still join in if you're newer, if you're visiting. There's a reading plan that really helps you kind of walk through the Gospels, the four Gospels, um, you know, a chapter a day or two chapters a day over these months that we study through the Sermon on the Mount. There's copies of that out at the welcome desk. All right? So there's an outline in your bulletin, and there'll be slides on the screen that help us walk through this passage. Um, we're going to look first at verse 27. And so we'll read that together. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay? So Jesus here is not disagreeing with or contradicting the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Right? He's pointing out the fact that the seventh commandment alone couldn't legislate against the, well, it could only legislate against the physical act of adultery. Okay? So the real issue is Jesus comes on the scene and the Pharisees, you know, were all about righteousness, but it was like external righteousness. It's a veneer. They're putting up a front. And inside, they were filled with lust and love of money and all these other things. Okay? So Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the matter. He's not disagreeing with or setting aside the Ten Commandments. 
He's actually come to fulfill them, not abolish them, like he says back in verses 17 and and 20 of chapter 5. So he's not downplaying the seventh commandment or writing it off. He's actually getting to the heart of it. So if you and I superficially, flippantly look at our life and say, well, I haven't slept with anyone who's not my spouse, so I'm good. We'll miss the point. We'll miss the true heart of the seventh commandment. And we're going to miss the righteousness that Jesus intends to produce in his disciples. Okay? That'd be like saying, well, as long as I don't hit the guardrails, I can drive however I want. No, that would be reckless. That'd be crazy. Guardrails are good. Don't commit adultery. You'll end up in a ditch, right? You know, damage done. But the road is love God and love your neighbor. It's not drive however you want, right? So the prohibitions are merely the guardrails. Love gets to the heart of the law, the purpose of the law. Love goes deeper than mere external acts or avoiding this, you know, external act or that external act. So what Jesus is doing here is he's turning on the Holy Spirit spotlight into our hearts, shining into the corners. So you and I, we may never get into bed with someone who's not your spouse, though some of you may have. But if you and I want someone who is not our covenant partner by marriage, we have, you and I, we have committed adultery in the bedroom of our heart. Hungry eyes mean an adulterous heart. That's what Jesus is saying. So let's follow him into verse 28 here now. Second point, hungry eyes, adulterous heart. Verse 28. You've heard it said, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or to make it even a little bit more clear the emphasis here, my translation, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful desire for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? There's a parallel there that's clear that points this out. So in the second letter of the apostle Peter, he describes these false teachers that were a threat to his readers by saying of them, 2 Peter 2.14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. So do you see the connection between the eyes and the heart? It's so important to understand this. It is an unbreakable connection. Jesus knows this. So he's getting to our hearts by getting at the heart of the seventh commandment by way of the tenth commandment. He's putting the tenth commandment and the seventh commandment together. What's the tenth commandment? Yell it out. Covet. Okay? Want something that doesn't belong to you. Desire something that doesn't belong to you. Selfishly, to have it for yourself. In fact, the term for lust in Matthew 5.28 is the same word used to translate covet in Exodus 20.17. Okay, so hungry eyes betray an adulterous heart, and it's our hearts that Jesus wants. 
Now, there is a difference between looking and lusting. Okay? It's not sin to see someone who is attractive. We can't walk around literally with blinders on, right? It's the lustful desire that leads to the second look, the extended look, and the firing of the imagination that is the issue here. So it's the heart that ends up commandeering the eyes to serve its lustful purpose. So looking at a woman or looking at a man happens because we have physical eyes to see. That's unavoidable. Looking with lust happens because we have hearts that want something that doesn't belong to us. We covet something. We covet someone that's not ours, that has not been given to us by God. So a few quick qualifiers here before we proceed any further. John Stott makes a good point when he writes this. He says, <clears throat> To argue that the reference is only to a man lusting after a woman and not vice versa, or only to a married man and not an unmarried, since the offender is said to commit adultery, not fornication, is to be guilty of the very clever but false reasoning which Jesus was condemning in the Pharisees. So listen, he's talking to his disciples. They were men. So let's not... He's talking about all of us, men or women, married or unmarried. And he's shining the light in all of our hearts. Okay, so first thing. Also, this also goes for same-sex desires as well. Everyone who f wants to follow Jesus must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. We are all sexual sinners. We're all sexually broken. And some of those impulses and desires are heterosexual in nature. For some, they're homosexual in nature. But when they are outside of God's design one man and one woman for life in a covenantal union, we have to put that to death. Trusting Jesus, put that to death and follow him. So this goes for all kinds of sexual sin and um, temptation. And then thirdly, just to say this, Jesus is not saying that all sins are equal. Okay? Murder actually is worse than hating someone in your heart. Adultery is actually worse than lust. So the multiplication of fallout and damage just simply bears that out. Okay? His point is not to equate all sins. His point is to address the heart of sin so that we address not just the visible rotten fruit, but the toxic root of our unrighteousness, okay? Speaking of toxic roots, I love this quote by A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God. He said, The ancient curse will not go out painlessly. Our sinful nature will not lie down and die in obedience to our command. It must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. It must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. It must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. And we shall need to steel ourselves against its piteous begging. So everyone who looks at a man or woman with lustful desire for her, for him, has already committed adultery with him, with her, in his heart. So who of us is not guilty of sexual sin? 
Where do we go from here? Well, before we go to the prescription that Jesus gives in verses 29 and 30, I want us to consider where do we go from here from a little wider angle lens. Okay, point number three, create in me a clean heart, O God. You heard that sentence in Psalm 51, right? So we're all guilty of sexual sin. God has seen it all, folks. You can erase your browser history or use private mode, but you cannot erase your guilt. God knows every selfish, every perverted thought you've ever had. And we cannot atone for that sin by putting some money in the plate or doing some nice things for our neighbor or by way of church attendance. Some of us have really screwed up. We've got some really deep regrets. We've got some very dark secrets. Some of you may actually have slept with someone who's not your spouse. Our sexual sin runs deep and it's wide. But listen, <laughs> the mercy and grace of Jesus is deeper and wider still. Anybody? Anybody happy about that? Okay. So what should you do? You can cry out to God for mercy and cleansing. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that can be whether for the first time or for the thousandth time this morning. Listen, if you come in here and you just think, you know, church is a good thing and I should be here, but, oh boy, if they knew what I had done. Well, Jesus knows what you've done. <laughs> and he died for the worst of sexual sinners. There's no, there's no little footnote on John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, you know, the good people. No. Whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. You can come to him for the first time and be forgiven of all your sin, cleansed of all your unrighteousness. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. It's like you're totally remade, reborn. The old has passed. The new has come. Jesus can make you new and clean. He can forgive all of your sins. He can wash you white as snow. Restore your purity. And that purity can also be stolen, not just by our sin, but also by the sins of others. Acts done against us. And that shame that is not your fault, but the fault of someone who has sinned against you, that also can be dealt with by Jesus. And he can restore your purity and honor to you as a beloved son or daughter. He bore our sorrows as well as our sins on the cross. So you can come for the first time and be cleansed. And you can also come for the thousandth time.
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we're just honest with God, we get real with God, we agree with Him. It is what it is. I need to stop blame shifting, downplaying, just kind of ignoring, hoping it'll go away. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear those verse, that, like the words in that verse? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. It's a justice issue. If you actually repent and ask for forgiveness, Jesus would be unjust not to forgive you because he died to save repentant sinners, to forgive them and cleanse them. He'd be going back on his word. That would be totally unjust. Isn't that amazing that he commits himself? <laughs> if you're his, it doesn't matter how many times you've stumbled. Oh, here I am again. You hate yourself. You're, you're kind of like beating yourself up. No, go to Jesus and he can cleanse you and forgive you. It's a justice issue. Amazing. He wants to do that. So let's not run away. Let's not stay in the dark, stay in the shadows. Don't avoid him because you think he's got to be sick of you by now. Step into the light and run to him, and he will restore you. Follow the path that Psalm 51 lays out for you. Some of you may need some help with this. Don't be afraid to ask. You can come talk to me. There are other folks in this body that would love to walk alongside you. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So we confess not to, oh, you know. No, we're not going to judge and look down. Repentant sinner, hey, me too? Yes. Let me take you to Jesus. Let's pray. So the question is, is this a safe place to confess? I wonder if that's the case. Are we talking about this stuff when we meet for coffee or in our community groups? Can we get honest and real with one another and share this stuff with each other? We need to be able to do that. This place, the church, the people of God, is not a place that's safe for sin, because we're going to war against that. But it is a safe place for sinners. It needs to be a safe place for sinners. This is a hospital for sin-sick people. That's why Jesus came. So if we are following him, if we are reflecting him, listen to what he said in Luke 5.31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we welcome the sick and sinful. And if you know you're a mess and you've got nothing but sin in your hand coming to Jesus, congratulations. Blessed are the poor in spirit who are totally spiritually bankrupt. You don't have anything to offer God except your sin. And he takes that, forgives and cleanses you, and he gives you his righteousness and he gives you his spirit and he gives you his promises and he gives you his love and he gives you the riches of his mercy. Like, blessed are the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, 
Our sexual sin runs deep and wide, but the mercy and grace of King Jesus, our Savior, is deeper and wider still. So, filled with his mercy and his grace and his love, we now can fight for fierce fidelity. Okay? Verses 29 to 30. Point number four. So the thought is, just in the flow here, if that's what it is, if that's how serious lust is, then if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, okay, most likely Jesus is using the right hand here. I mean, obviously we see and we desire the right hand is probably because adultery is a kind of theft. It's taking someone or something that's not yours. So, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, is Jesus actually commanding us to self-mutilate, to literally gouge out an eye? Well, of course, if you gouge out, gouge out your right eye or you cut off your hand, it doesn't excavate deep enough. It doesn't go to the root of sin in the heart. If you tear out one eye, you can look with lustful intent with your left eye. I mean, Jesus said elsewhere in Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So actually, the fact that he says right eye and right hand is, is probably a tip-off um, to what he means here. The right eye and the hand were, you know, no offense to the lefties here, okay, at the time considered most valuable, okay? The favored hand, the favored eye for important activities. So, for instance, the left hand was used, you know, in the bathroom. You get my idea here, okay? So the point is we should be willing to do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, the most valuable members. But Jesus is not commanding Mutilation, he's commanding mortification. Okay, physical (laughs) mutilation obviously doesn't go deep enough, right? It can't remove the roots of lust out of our hearts. Only mortification, self-denial, moral self-denial and repentance by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, that's the only way that those roots can get dug up. If you put out one eye, you can... Lust with the other. If you put out both eyes, you still have your imagination. So John Stott says it well when he says, What Jesus was advocating was not a literal physical self-maiming, but a ruthless moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification is the path of holiness he taught. So you remember, we've said this just about every week. Remember where this sermon starts. Like when Jesus is baptized, the first thing out of his mouth in Matthew 4.17 is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So the whole point is we're going to need to change. And repentance is a good thing. When we are on the path of destruction, when we're following down the wrong road, turning around is the best thing we can do. It's what actually kind of, to change the metaphor, turns on the flow of grace into our lives. So we need to repent because we want to be citizens of this kingdom under this king because he is leading us on the narrow path to life. We don't want to be on the broad road to destruction. So we are after some fierce fidelity here. Don Carson says this, we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little of it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. Paul says in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So these verses, Matthew 5, 27 and 30, they're not hard to understand. Not a lot of complicated reasoning here. The point's pretty simple. You've heard that. I say this. <laughs> Go do that. So intellectually, it's an easy text. But oh, how inadequate mere intellectual understanding is when it comes to lust. Have you ever noticed how we can kind of pull the wool over our own eyes on this stuff when we start to get tempted? So we need to be alert and vigilant and do whatever it takes to guard our hearts, guard our eyes, and be willing to take drastic measures if need be. So what kind of maiming is God calling you or me to this morning? What steps do you need to take? Seriously. Like prayerfully right now before God, do that. Like, write some practical stuff down. Lord, help me know. Like, do I need to take some apps off my phone? Do I need to get a dumb phone? <laughs> do I need to get covenant eyes, you know, if accountability software and maybe a partner? Do you just need to get out into the light and actually confess your struggle to somebody? I mean, Satan wants you to keep it hidden in the darkness. You get it out into the light, it breaks the power of it. Do you need to cancel your Netflix subscription? Again, it's not saying these things are necessarily evil, but what is it for you right now? Where are the weak points, the areas of temptation? Whatever it takes, take drastic measures. This is infinitely, eternally important. So fixing our eyes, setting our minds, guarding our hearts. And listen, again, zooming out a little bit at more of what the Bible says about these things. We don't just cut out. We don't just put to death. We also need to fill up with good things, replacement things. Like, why do we go down that road in the moment? It's because we think that's more satisfying than God and his promises. So maybe it's because we're not fighting fire with fire. Maybe we need to meditate on, memorize and meditate on some sweet promises that we can battle with in the moment of temptation like Jesus in the wilderness. No good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. 
Or Matthew 5, 8 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to see you, God, more than I want to see her or him naked or just, you know, imagine what it would be like, you know, spinning out this fantasy, this alternative universe in my head. What do you do when you spin out the fantasy in your head? You're like a little God. Everything goes according to your will. It's not going according to your will in this life, and you're frustrated and annoyed. And so you can just create a little alternate universe in your head, and you can cast yourself as a little God. It's like a little God complex going on there. We need to say, repent. You know, it's like a little mental movie. Cut. Jesus, you're king. <laughs> Help me trust you. You're more than enough. So, what measures? What do we need to cut out? How can we fill up on the good things? Maybe you need to, you know, memorize some passages. Maybe you need to read a good book along with some brothers or sisters. There's a book called Sexual Sanity for Men. And there's one called Sexual Sanity for Women. You could work through that with somebody. Hey, would you do this with me? Need some accountability, encouragement. These are measures that are worth taking to guard us. And this is not about like sin police. And, and this is about setting us free and protecting us from slavery. This is sin that so easily entangles. Don't you want to just live free? Don't you want to help your brothers and sisters live free? So this is, again, our sin runs deep and wide, but the stubborn love of Jesus is deeper still, wider still, and he wants to put to death in us everything that's killing us so that he can set us free to really live and really love. He wants to produce heart-level righteousness and purity in us. So we need this fierce fidelity that makes war with our sin, our lusts, our selfishness, out of love for God and love for neighbor. So love is the last point. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So listen, we've all been given these bodies. We have eyes and hands. We have all kinds of body parts. We also have an imagination. What are those things for? God gave them to you. They're good. They can be used for good purposes. They're actually given so that we can love well. But they can so easily get hijacked and commandeered for selfish, sinful purposes. So let's not prostitute our eyes or our imagination. I mean, that'd be like if somebody gave you money to take care of orphans and you went to the casino. When we misappropriate things that are given to us, it's kind of like that. You go, ooh, that's terrible. Well, that's what we do. When we take good gift like an imagination or eyes or hands or feet and we use them for a totally different selfish, lustful purpose. So our eyes were not given to us to objectify and steal. Our hands were not given to steal and to take Lust takes. Love gives. 
Our eyes were given to us to see needs and love people and serve. So Jesus is loving us in this passage, and he's aiming at producing loving hearts in us by killing our selfishness and our covetousness. We need to follow him in us, taking drastic measures, serious these commands to fierce fidelity. And we've got to be in this together with each other, not just kind of lone rangers, but fighting for each other's faith as well. Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need each other. Our singles have unique challenges and temptations. We need to pray for them and fight for them. Understand. Our married folk have unique challenges and temptations. We need to pray for them and understand and encourage and hold them accountable. Our children, good grief. Like, are they growing up in like a world that's awash with sensuality? Everything is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just in all the advertising, it's all over the place, it's everywhere. And even also for the world. Like, what we do with this is going to mean we either drag the name of Jesus through the mud or we become this beautiful countercultural community that shines brightly where God's planted us. So this matters big time. So, remember, salt and light, influencing, preserving, that's what we're called to. This is vital if that is going to happen. And, yeah, it's dark, but the light shines that much brighter in the midst of deep darkness. So one quote, I said something about, like, you know, we need to fight for each other, and this, in, this also includes just caring about the next generation. And I know if you're a parent, you're probably concerned about these things, just the ubiquity, you know, screens everywhere, access to the Internet, you know, one click away, all of that. So I ran across this book. Um, I got it actually this week and read it. It's called Not If But When, Preparing Our Children for Worldly Images. Do you know there's a book out there that can help you walk through with your kids how, like what to do if somebody at school shows you something that you shouldn't see? Or, so like as parents, are we having these conversations? Do we actually talk about this stuff? Well, here's a resource that can be helpful. So there's a section, it's, it's kind of like written one way for girls and one way for boys. And, yeah, you might want to come look at it and order one, okay? Um, there's also this little booklet called Raising Sexually Healthy Kids. A couple years ago, we gave that to all the families in the church, and there's still a few copies left in that little kind of plexiglass or acrylic, whatever it is. <laughs> little, there's these little booklets out there in the lobby. Okay, easy for me to say. All right, um, so one quote from the end of this. I thought it was so appropriate and encouraging. And then back to Aaron Ralston, and, uh, and then we'll be done. Pornography is a sad reality of this world we live in. It is something that has ruined individuals, families, marriages, ministries, and churches. Even though some people claim it is simply a part of growing up, it is a horrific evil Christians must fight against. 
It's my hope and prayer that this little workbook could assist individuals, families, marriages, ministries, and churches in that fight. Even though pornography wounds many and leaves those in a wake of destruction, we must not lose heart because we have we must not lose heart because we have one who was wounded in order to bring redemption. And then I love this sentence. Do you believe this? Pornography is no match for the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you are one who's looked at pornography or continues to look at pornography, Jesus offers forgiveness. If you are one who gets discouraged in your fight against pornography, the Spirit gives you strength. If you're a parent who's terrified for your child growing up in a world filled with pornography, know that your Heavenly Father loves you as His child and will graciously guide your family through this dark world. Remember, there is a day coming when pornography will not exist. Jesus lived, died, rose, and ascended, and He's coming back. He's coming back to make all things new and take His bride home forever. Amen. So, in conclusion here, this Aaron Ralston guy, the guy that cut his hand off or his arm off to escape death, he wrote a book of his experience, and perhaps you can guess the title. Yes, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, okay? (laughs) So he's done a bunch of motivational speaking as well, and here's, just listen to these two things that he's said. One, I left something behind that day in that canyon, but I didn't lose anything. And you know he had that epiphany when he, oh, I can break my forearm bones. He said this in an interview, I was smiling when I was cutting off my arm. And when he was free, he said, I stepped out of my grave and into my life again. So Jesus is calling us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. He's telling us here that we need to be ruthless with our sin, doing whatever it takes so that we're not entrapped. It's better to enter life maimed than to go to hell. Jesus wants you and me to step out of the soul-deadening grave of sexual sin and into your life again, following him. You will leave some things behind, but you won't lose anything. Let's pray. I pray that you would cleanse us, Lord. Help us to be honest with ourselves, honest with you, and honest with each other. Do give us clean hands and pure hearts. And help us, by your grace, to trust and follow Jesus on the path of love. In his name, amen.